students and me and what they say and what they mean. Um, and so, yeah, basically I'm just going to do that because we think that the Bible is the primary way that the Lord speaks to us um, and it's how we um, understand more about him and grow as believers. Um, so I'm going to, yeah, read the passage, which is Luke 9, 37 to 50. And then at the end, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. We're all going to respond, thanks be to God, as Barbara says, with gusto. Um, and then I'm going to say a quick prayer. Um, so this is what it says in Luke 9, verses 37 to 50. On the next day, when they'd come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But when they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Uh, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me for he is who is least among you all is the one who is great John answered master we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us but Jesus said to him do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God just gonna say a prayer um, yeah, Father, we thank you um, for your word. We thank you for how you have been teaching us um, and training us through um, this book of Luke over the last like two years. Um, yeah, Father, we pray that as we continue to be devoted to your word as a church, that you would be growing us in love for you and for each other and for our city of Belfast, um, and that we would be known as a people who are marked by these things. I pray that the words that Andrew is speaking us speaking to us today and um, would just be from you and um, father would you put him at ease and would he be able to trust in you for what you're saying in this passage amen thanks caitlin uh, like caitlin said um if you're new or uh visiting with us this morning like we're just we, we just take books of the bible and work our way through them and uh just for the context of today's reading, if you're not familiar, last week we, we had this scene of um, Jesus going up to the top of the mountain and he was transfigured where it was almost like his true nature was revealed, that, that his glory and he was shining bright like lightning, his face was glowing like the sun and before that he has had this episode where he tells his disciples to take up their cross daily every day and follow him. So that's where we are this morning um, and uh, next week, we actually have a guest speaker next week, he's a great friend of mine. 
Dan Steele, he's from England, and he's coming over, uh, and I get to be in church and not preach, which is really nice for the first time in a while. Um, so we're looking forward to that. Next week, we see that Jesus then turns his, he sets his attention towards Jerusalem. Um, at this point, he's been in Galilee, up in the north of Israel, and now his attention is going to focus towards the cross. That's really the rest of the book. The second half of this gospel is about that. Um, as Lauren said, on Friday, we were celebrating with Duncan and Laura as they got married. It was a good day. Um, even though me and the other minister both messed up their names, uh, I, I called them Lunkin and Dora, which is pretty funny. Um, but it was a good day. And one of the things I spoke about in, in the wedding was, was how whenever you're getting married, people tend to give you all kinds of advice. When you're about to get married, people just feel pretty happy to come up to you and tell you how to do it, right? Um, which is a weird kind of thing. And some of the advice you get is good and some of it's bad. For example, one good piece of advice is, um, you know, try to never go to bed angry with one another. A bad piece of advice, however, I read, I think it's a bad piece of advice, uh, I read last week, came from a survey of over 2,000 married couples and this piece of advice was, for a successful marriage, try to have at least two massive fights a month. Like, I mean, sometimes we're like way above that, <laughs> and sometimes we're not. But we don't try to have fights. And I'm not sure that how, uh, going into marriage, trying to have fights is a good thing. But anyway, but it's not just marriage, is it? There's, there's advice for everything. There's lessons in everything. Lessons in, in parenting, lessons in, in being successful, how to make money, how to be happy. Just about anything you can find good advice or lessons in. And while as Jesus is about to start making his way towards Jerusalem, there are some lessons here that he wants to impart to his disciples. And so pretty simply today from the passage, we're just going to see four lessons in following Jesus. Four lessons in being a disciple of Jesus. See, from this point onwards, uh, more and, as more and more people learn about Jesus and, and hear the message he's preaching and, and more of his identity is revealed, then not only is the ministry going to intensify, uh, not only is the ministry of the disciples going to intensify, but the opposition to them is going to get stronger. We'll see in the coming chapters that, that, that the, 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 the spiritual attacks increase, that more of the religious leaders come out of the woodwork to attack him. And Jesus is saying, you guys need to understand these things as you follow me. And so it is for us too. I mean, it won't be surprising to you if you're a Christian that, that we live in a time and place when, when opposition to our faith and opposition to what we believe is, is, seems to be increasing. Some of you have experienced this in extreme ways, and I guarantee you that as time goes on, if you remain faithful to Jesus, you will experience this. Last week, we got this clear vision of the glory of Jesus, and that's going to sustain us as we take up our cross and follow him every day. And in this passage, we, we get some lessons on, on what this actually looks like. So you can think about it a bit like driving a car. So the vision of the glory of Jesus is, is, the, is the fuel that you put into the car, whether it's a battery that you charge or old school diesel or petrol. That's the fuel. But the lessons that we learn in how to follow him are kind of like the instructions that you get in your driving lessons. It's how to actually drive the car. And the first lesson we see here is that we need to depend on Jesus. Depend on Jesus. We see this at the very start of our passage in verses 37 to uh, 43. Jesus has come down from the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And he comes down into the real world, doesn't he? There's a crowd waiting for him. And, and, the, and in the crowd is this dad who is, who is begging him to heal his demon-possessed son. 
Now, what struck me is that this is a picture of the incarnation itself, isn't it? Jesus up on high in all his glory. And he comes down from his glory into the mess, into humanity. And he finds people suffering and in need. Jesus steps down from his glory and into our chaos and pain and suffering and mess because he is merciful and loving. This is what verse 38 says. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, I beg you, to look at my son, for he is my only child. You can hear the desperation in his voice. Behold, the spirit seizes him, and suddenly he cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it shatters him, and it will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And what Jesus says next to his disciples actually tells us why they were unable to help the boy. In verse 41, Jesus says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Faithless and twisted. This is what he says to his disciples. Now, that, that probably seems quite harsh to us, right? Faithless and twisted. And I actually think that it's meant to, I'm not suggesting that Jesus is being rude or sinning, but he really wants to get his point across. He really wants to impress on them that, that one day soon, he's going to be no longer with them in person, and they need to learn this lesson now. They need to learn faith and dependence on him. They are faithless. In other words, they aren't relying on Jesus. They, they, they haven't really fully taken in or are not dependent on the fact that what they've just confessed, that he is the Christ. And then he says they are twisted. This just means that they are, they are turned away, that, that things are in the wrong order. This is the same word that the Bible used for perverse or distorted. Now, usually whenever we hear that word uh, perverted, we think of like sexual connotations or something. But, but in, in this context, in the context of the Bible, it just means twisted. It means not the way it ought to be. It means reversed. It's, it's in the wrong way. We see this word in, used in Acts 13 when Barnabas and Saul are, are, are facing a sorcerer who is, uh, not Saul, Silas, I think, who are facing this sorcerer who are attempt, he's attempting to, to twist God. He twists the, the works of God and, and say it's his magic. And the bottom line is, that the disciples are unable to carry out the ministry of Jesus because they're not dependent on him. He's not their source. And church, we need to grasp this most important lesson about following Jesus. We need to depend constantly on him in faith. The, the world continually tells us that, that we need to stand on our own two feet. This is the way we're brought up, isn't it? I don't know if this is a cultural thing to... Northern Ireland or whatever, but we're, 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 we're taught to stand on our own two feet. But the, but the upside down nature of the kingdom of God tells us that success is actually being completely dependent on Jesus. There's no point trying to cast out demons or to heal the sick or even for us just live a life of simple obedience to him or trying to be faithful in the midst of suffering if we are not dependent on him. I talked about this in the wedding the other day as well. In John 15, verse 5, this is, he's having a conversation with his disciples the night before he is crucified. And he tells them this. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. During the, 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 the first COVID lockdowns, weird time, wasn't it? Um, Haley started growing tomatoes. She's still doing it. Um, we save about £2.65 every year. It's amazing. Um, 
I'm so glad she's not in here right now. Um, and last year, one of the tomato plants kind of grew in this twisted way where it had like the main stem and then one kind of second stem coming off it. And we kind of knew that, well, if we don't cut this stem off, the main one's not going to have as much nutrients to, to, to grow the fruit. And so we cut it off. Now, whenever we cut it off, it didn't keep growing. It didn't produce fruit. It didn't have really good tomatoes. No, it just weathered up and died. And Jesus says, this is us. If we're not connected to him, if we're not dependent on him, we won't produce any fruit. If we're faithless, if, 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 if we're turned away from him, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. He doesn't say you can do some things. He doesn't say you can do a wee bit. He, he, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And, and I think about my own life and our culture and, and my friends, and I think that the, this idea of standing on our own two feet and, and working hard to earn our way in the world and, and be self-sufficient, it's so ingrained into us that the idea of, of complete dependence on Jesus is strange and probably even repulsive to us, right? And if you don't believe me, just think about the last time somebody offered to help you. What was your response? I can almost guarantee you that even if you eventually want, went on to accept the help that they were offering, you probably first of all said something like, oh, no, 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 it's fine, honestly, you don't need to do that. That's our response, isn't it? We hate the idea of dependence. It's even happened in here this morning. Somebody needed help and they refused to ask for it. Church, this is not the way of the kingdom. We are created to depend. We're created to be in him and him in us. And sometimes in your life, Jesus will bring you to a place where there's nothing else to say. Jesus, I have to depend on you. And that's a good thing. We need him. We need to learn dependence. Because look what happens here. Look what happens here. I'll read it out. Verse 30. Um, verse, sorry. Verse 42. The father comes in and he's bringing his boy. And as the, the demon comes close to Jesus, it convulses the boy. But Jesus, verse 42 says, rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. With a word, Jesus was able to do what the disciples could not. With a word, his power and authority are revealed. This is why we can't depend on ourselves as we follow him. He's the one with power and authority. Later on in a letter to the church, uh, John the Apostle, who was on the mountaintop with Jesus, which we saw last week, and is here with Jesus now, seeing this, he says, um, he says in 1 John 4, verse 4, he says, Little children, you are from, from God and have overcome them. That's the, the, the opposition. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. See, the disciples can't, but Jesus can. We can't. But Jesus can. This is why we sing the song, Yet not I, but through Christ in me. The one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. It's only through the power of Christ that we can resist temptation and reject sin. It's only through the, the power of Christ that, that we can love and serve others. It's only through Christ that we can have a life of prayer and evangelism. If we are to take up our cross every day and follow Jesus, we must depend on him by faith. Otherwise, it's like just trying to drive that car without charging the battery or putting petrol in. So to follow Jesus, we need to depend on him. That's our first lesson. But next thing we see that in following Jesus, we must expect 
rejection. We have to expect rejection. Look at verses, um, the end of verse 43 and the start of verse 45 with me. It says this, But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand his saying, and it was concealed from them so they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So the disciples are in awe of the majesty of God, and they've once seen God at work through the power of Jesus displayed in his actions. But Jesus doesn't just want them to be in awe. He wants them to hear and understand, because there's a big difference between being in awe of something and actually trusting in something. So I can be in awe of those guys who do the, you know, the, the guys that do the slack line walks across canyons or between two buildings. I can be in awe of that, but that's very different from, from me actually saying, well, I think I can do that too, so just give it a go. Like, I would fall to my death. Jesus wants the disciples to get this. He says, let these words sink in. He's saying, look, guys, get this into your heads. You're marveling at all these great works that I'm doing and you want to follow me because you think it's about just going around and, and having crowds following you all the time and doing great miracles, but it's not. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. This phrase, delivered into the hands of men, this just means judgment. It means that, means that the enemies of God are going to be able to do whatever they want to him. It means given over to them for the purpose of suffering and judgment and rejection. And Jesus says, listen to me, hear me well. To follow me is not just about marveling at all the good things that I do. It's a path towards suffering and rejection. See, to, to throw our lot in with Jesus is to embrace the rejection that Jesus expected. This is why Jesus doesn't say, if you want to follow me, go and pick up your first class ticket to a comfy ride to heaven. He says, deny yourself. And every day, take up your cross. To follow Jesus is to take up your cross. It's to embrace rejection. The way down is the way up. The path to glory is the path through suffering. To follow Jesus is to go all in with him, no matter the cost. Yeah, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of Ruth. Um, and you might know it. Um, but Ruth who uh, was, was not um, an Israelite. She was married to Naomi's son. And pretty soon, uh, Ruth's father-in-law, Naomi's husband, dies. And then Ruth's husband dies. And Naomi gives Ruth this opportunity to go back to her own land, to her own people. Because Ruth is still young. She's a very beautiful woman. And, and, and she, could have, uh, she could have went on to be married and have children and, and create a good life for herself. But Ruth refuses, and instead she chooses to stay with her mother-in-law. Even though it would mean a life of uncertainty, it's going to lead to poverty, it's going to lead to suffering. And this is what she says. One of the most incredible declarations of faith in the Bible, she says, Where you will go, I will go. And where you live, I will live. Your people shall be my people, and my God shall be your God. Where my, your God shall be my God, and where you die, I will die. Church, this is what it means to follow Jesus. When we trust in Jesus, that's what we're saying to him. Where you go, 
I'm going to go. Where you live, I'm going to live. Where you die, I'm going to die. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. It means to embrace rejection because we are throwing our lot in with Jesus. And this was his lot. Jesus is going to unfold these themes of the cost of following him later on at the end of chapter 9. People say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. But that's not true. If your eggs are your faith and the basket is Jesus, then we will put all of our eggs in that basket. We need to expect rejection because we are all in with Jesus. Yes, we share in his victory. We love celebrating that. We should celebrate that. But what did victory look like for Jesus? It looked like being delivered into the hands of men, being rejected and accused and and tortured and killed. So we need to ask ourselves, are we willing to, to accept that? Are we willing to expect the rejection? Will we be glad to follow Jesus if it means that we might not succeed in our career? If it means we might not succeed in our relationships? Does Jesus mean so much to us that, that we will gladly be rejected by people, even people we love? I, I, know, I know what it feels like to have friends re, re, reject you because of your, your decision to follow the call of Jesus in your life. And it's not nice. It's painful and it's sad. But brothers and sisters, the call on the people of God is not just to marvel at his works, but to follow him in that path of rejection. We have to ask ourselves, are we willing to do that? Because the path into rejection is actually the path to glory. That's our second lesson. First of all, in following Jesus, we depend on him. In following Jesus, we expect rejection. And thirdly, we embrace humility. We embrace humility. Uh, Verse 46 to 48 says this. um, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. This is the disciples. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts took a child and put it by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among you all is the one who is great. I think it's funny how quickly the disciples go from like marveling at the glory of God, the majesty of God, to, to having this argument about who's the greatest. Like clearly, as verse 45 says, they don't understand what's going on here. Um, me and my sister used to do these things like we'd get a glass of milk before we go to bed every night and we used to put our milk beside each other to see, who, see which one had more in it and then you try and get that one or if like I remember you know millions the sweets we would like literally count out the amount of millions we had <laughs> millions of them like to see who got more this is like the disciples here but Jesus has got this other lesson for them it's not about who is the greatest or most influential. It's about who welcomes the least, the last, and the lost. In other words, Jesus redefines greatness, doesn't he? He redefines greatness. Muhammad Ali, arguably the, the, the best heavyweight boxer the world has ever seen, he used to say in his heyday, he used to say, I am the greatest. That was his famous line, I am the greatest. To be fair, he kind of backed it up in the ring. But being the most physically dominant or, or the most powerful or the richest or the most popular or, or in any of these ways that the world defines greatness is not the way of the kingdom of God. Jesus redefines greatness because to follow a crucified savior, one who was willing to, to, to give up his power and voluntarily lay down his life, 
that's going to lead us to a very different idea of what greatness actually is. Jesus says, whoever is the least among you is the one who is great. Jesus says, embracing humility is the way to greatness. This is the upside down nature of the kingdom of heaven. Everything everything about the world has been distorted because of sin. That's the idea of being twisted and depraved and, 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 and perverse because of sin. And this is why uh, Jesus is coming to restore all that has been lost. Embracing humility is the way of following Jesus. And more than that, that just new definition of greatness, Jesus actually says that, that greatness looks like caring for the least of these. He uses a child as an example. See, in those days, Children were viewed as powerless and irrelevant. There was no such thing as child, children's rights. There was no child protection laws. A, ch- a child is a picture here for Jesus of, of the least useful, the least productive. They don't add anything to the family. They don't go out and get jobs. They had zero social status. They were the least significant. And Jesus says, serving and receiving the least significant people is the path to greatness. See, not only does the Lord redefine greatness, he reorders greatness, doesn't he? He's saying that if we receive the least, we receive Jesus. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. You see how the, the, the path of humility is a path to glory? Because we receive the, the lowest and the least in the eyes of the world. And, and then we actually receive Jesus. And when we receive Jesus, through him we receive the Father. And we're going to have to ask ourselves, is this enough for us? Are we satisfied with living in quiet and humble service to God? Caring for the the least and the last and the lost. Most of the time, without recognition or notice. Uh, One of the things I love most about my job is I love hearing stories of how our church care for each other. I love it. And this week, I got to hear about someone caring for other people. And I had no idea this was going on. And this person in our church was just going out of their way to, to welcome people and care for people and serve them. And, and, and this is what the path to greatness in the kingdom looks like. And we, will we be satisfied with this? Will we be satisfied with being seen by God and not seen by other people? Because again, something that is kind of ingrained into us, is, is the idea that we need to seek recognition, to be noticed, to be, to be great in the eyes of others. Like think about things like TikTok and Instagram. Like that, that's all about projecting yourself, isn't it? And in many cases, it's about promoting yourself. In our careers, what do we talk about? We talk about a career ladder. It's something to be ascended. It's something to be climbed up ahead of other people. It's something to be achieved. And the closer you get to the top of the ladder, the more successful you are in the eyes of the world. But Jesus reorders greatness. It's the ones here at the bottom of the ladder who are the great ones in the kingdom. It's not popularity or power or fame or being noticed that's the way to greatness in the kingdom. In the kingdom, it is unnoticed devotion to Jesus and service of others, service of the least in society, serving the single mums in our community. Serving those that can't afford food through the food bank. This is the path to greatness in the kingdom. Now, I just want to add on this as we embrace humility. 
please hear me. This doesn't mean that you have to have low self-esteem or a low opinion of yourself, right? Because after all, if you are valued by the king of kings, if you are made in his image, how could we have a low value of ourselves? So, so I think that being made in the image of God means that we were designed to think and build and create and explore. Ambition, when held in the right way, is a God-honoring thing. But it's, it's, it's when we put that ahead of other people. It's when we start to think that those gifts that we have of, 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 of being creative or exploring or building or whatever it may be, those things that, that we're therefore better than other people. And embracing humility is not beating yourself up. It's not thinking, I'm so terrible and I have nothing to offer. And then just never trying anything. That's not humility. There's sin in that as well. But I think C.S. Lewis put it so well. He, he, he wrote this. He said, humility is not thinking of yourself, or not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Embracing humility is not having a low opinion of yourself. It's placing a higher value on those around you. The way of following Jesus is to welcome people that others value least. It's in how we treat each other within the church family as brothers and sisters, putting their needs before our own. It's how we think about our brothers and sisters, thinking of them highly and honoring them with our words. Our words, by the way, when they're around and when they're not around. It's making a place at your table for the poor, the immigrant, the refugee. It's about caring for those that society places little or no value on. The Roma people that work in the car wash. The people who receive racist abuse. The unborn children. Embracing humility is valuing those that society places no or little value on. This is the way of following Jesus. And if we are like the disciples here, thinking that we won't suffer, or if we're kind of trying to figure out how to create position for ourselves, then we've entirely missed the point. Because following Jesus means embracing humility. So, we've seen that following Jesus means that we depend on him. It means that we expect rejection. It means that we embrace humility. And the fourth lesson is that we reject tribalism. We reject tribalism. Look at verse 49 50 with me. John answered, Master, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Normally it's Peter we get used to putting his foot in it, isn't it? Um, but here it's John. And John has really missed the point. I mean, Jesus is, is just talking about humility and not promoting ourselves over others. And John responds to this. By the way, it wasn't a question that needed a response. But John answers him anyway and says, look at that guy over there. Let's make him less than us. And what's interesting about this is that this person is doing what the disciples could not. This person is, is casting out demons, the very thing that they had just failed to do. See, there's insecurity takes over here, isn't there? And when the insecurity creeps in, that leads to tribalism. Please hear me when I say this, and I'll explain what I mean. There is no room for territorialism in the kingdom. We have such a temptation to be this way, don't we? Maybe we see our sister 
bringing somebody in the church and they trust in Jesus and, and instead of celebrating, you think, oh, why is that not me? I've been, I've been sharing the gospel with my friend for years and they're still not saved. Why is that not me? Or maybe you see your brother or sister moving into leadership and we think, well, why is not me? How come nobody notices what I do? Church, we, we need to reject this attitude. This is not the way of the kingdom. We need to guard our hearts and take these thoughts captive because there is no place for this way of thinking in the kingdom of Jesus. Our job is not to keep our brothers and sisters down, but to encourage them and build them up and cheer them on. In this, in this weird thing called the church, God gives various gifts and positions to who he chooses. And we have to just believe and trust that he is wiser than us. Some of us will have more prominent and visible, visible roles and, and more public gifting. And some of us will have less noticeable gifts and be called to serve in more quiet and behind the scenes way. And this is actually a good thing. This Friday, me and Haley are going to see uh, one of my favorite bands, The Frames. And, and we were listening to them in the car the other day on the way to the wedding. And um, I was just thinking about how there's all these different roles within the band. Like we're enjoying the music and it's great. And I was thinking, oh, this is one of my favorite songs of theirs. This is one of my favorite songs. Uh, but there's a drummer, there's a bass player, there's a fiddle player, there's an electric guitar player, there's a lead singer, all different kinds of things. Now, if they all tried to be the lead singer, it would be a mess. You just have a bad choir. Or uh, if, if they all tried to be the fiddle player, it would sound like cats fighting, right? It wouldn't be a good thing. But by each member playing their own part and actually welling each other on success. I want you to be the best fiddle player in the world. I want you to be the best bass player in the world. We're all going to be comfortable with our gifts and our roles. Then the whole thing comes together and we go, wow, what incredible music. This is the way of the church. We well each other on. We each play our part and trust that God is orchestrating the whole thing to make beautiful music together. <laughs> that sounds weird, but that's what's happening. And here's the key thing to notice here. Verse 49, um, John actually says, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, right? They're doing it in the name of Jesus. It's not like they're doing something in the name of some other God or something. They're doing it in the name of Jesus. And crucially, they're doing something good in the name of Jesus. They're not cursing people or being racist or abusing people. They are casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And there's been plenty of things done over the years and still in our city today that are bad things that are done in the name of Jesus. And we need to reject those. But, but listen, we might not like it when we see other tribes or other churches doing well. But when we see something good being done in the name of Jesus, we need to celebrate that. We need to reject tribalism. If anywhere in the world knows about tribalism, it's here, right? Our city has a history of tribalism. And it's a cancer that has seeped into the church. And it shames the name of Jesus. We have this built-in skepticism for the other. They don't have the right hymns, or their ministers wear funny clothes, or they're old-fashioned, or, or why are they coming into our area? We're the church plant here. But listen, there is no place for tribalism in the kingdom of God. Let's, let's be a church that celebrates what God is doing in our city. If revival breaks out in the church down the road, we're not going to be jealous. We're going to celebrate that, right? There are other churches in our city that differ in so many ways, in so many things to us, like how the church is to be governed or baptism or how we share the gospel, the way they dress, the, the music they use, whatever it may be. 
And let me tell you, Jesus says, if they are not against us, they are for us. Jesus chooses to use who he will. And by the way, we don't get it all right. (laughs) Of course, we're going to be purposeful about how we practice what we believe. But we're not going to look down on other churches who are doing different things. If they're doing their best to follow and love Jesus, celebrate that. Let's have generous hearts that that celebrate and cheer on what God is doing through brothers and sisters and other church families. Tim always reminds me, well, we're going to be all in heaven together someday. We're all going to be worshiping the same Jesus. Village church is not the center of his mission. I am not the center of his mission. You're not the center of his mission He is the center of his mission. Jesus is the center of his mission. And only him. And we don't have to be tribalistic. Because if our primary aim is that Jesus is glorified, if that's what we're here for, then we can just rejoice with everybody else who rejoices when Jesus is exalted, right? If Jesus is being exalted, then we should be excited. The way of following Jesus is to depend on him by faith, to expect rejection, to embrace humility, and to reject tribalism. Did you see what's going on here in all four of these lessons? It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is showing and telling us that it's not about us, it's about him. These lessons in discipleship that we've seen this morning are not just instructions to follow. They're actually, they're actually pictures of the gospel, aren't they? Let me explain what I mean. Firstly, we depend on Jesus because he is dependable. He is all-powerful. He descended from the mountain into the mess and displayed his power and authority. He is faithful to care for those who are suffering. He has power and authority over our enemies. The Lord Jesus laid aside his glory and entered into our mess and our suffering and our sin and displayed his power and authority by defeating our enemy. This is the gospel. And also, we expect rejection because Jesus was rejected. He doesn't cling to his rights as the eternal son of God. He embraces suffering and rejection to fulfill God's plan. He is driven towards rejection out of his love for us. Hebrews tells us that it was was because of the joy that was set before him that he went to the cross. His joy was us. He was rejected by humanity so that we could be accepted by God. This is the gospel. Also, we embrace humility because Jesus humbled himself. Jesus, though he was God, didn't count his godness to be something to be clung on to. Instead, he emptied himself. He became the servant of the people he had created. And he embraced humility to the point of death, even death on a cross for us. This is the gospel. And finally, we reject tribalism because Jesus died for all who believe in him. 